BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell Show. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to some information that we need to know about so that we can better discern the times we live in. No noise, no caterwauling, get underneath all that stuff that trends virally and blares at us from the news rounds and get to stuff that we actually need to know about. Um, at the end of the program today, we're going to have what we promised we would do. The Maui fires are horrific. We've got a listing of places you can give, donate, send stuff to. We'll cover that. And what is normally our good segment, this isn't good, but it's trying to do some good in a bad situation. Bert Lyko, our very good friend, uh, editor emeritus at Ordinary-Times.com and a lawyer of some note. He's been writing about the Donald Trump cases for years I thought it'd be a good day because this is going to be a big Donald Trump news week um, to go back and look at some of the stuff he wrote right after January 6th, during January 6th, some stuff I wrote and put a little perspective. Now that we actually have indictment and charges, we're expecting more charges probably out of Georgia here shortly. So it's going to be a big Donald Trump week. A little perspective with our friend Bert Lyko on the current set of the January 6th charges, the overall legal cases, how to discern the headlines as they come, before they come, so that we know what we're talking about when it comes to all the legal trouble the former President Donald J. Trump finds himself in. Bert Lyko, always enjoy his insight and wisdom on the program today as our guest. But first, since that stuff's going to dominate and we're working up, probably on tomorrow's program, we're going to be talking about the new Hunter Biden stuff. We've now got a special counsel assigned, who's the guy that was already doing it, which kind of defeats the point of a special counsel, but we'll talk about that probably on tomorrow's program or so forth. I actually want to talk about something completely different. I want to talk about leadership for a minute. Now, leadership's something that we talk about periodically, but we want to highlight it because uh, the old saying, everything rises and falls on leadership. Heard my dad say that a million times. I've, I don't know where he got it from, but it's true. Heard it in my military career. Heard it in my civilian business career. I heard it when I was a worker. I heard it when I was a manager. I heard it when I was a supervisor. I heard it when I was NCO. Everything rises and falls on leadership. One thing I want to do 
it's to talk about it for a second because whether you talk about what Donald Trump did or didn't do as president or what President Biden's doing or doing, or as we follow uh, things like in higher ed, university presidents, what they're doing and not doing, local government, what they're doing and not doing. There's all kinds of leaders. You're a leader in your homes. You're a leader at work. Maybe you're not a leader. So much of what goes on in the news cycle, if we get down to it, goes to leadership. I was reading some stuff and researching a project. When I think of leadership in American history, there's uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower really sticks out for a couple of reasons. Of course, his World War II service, he wasn't the tactical genius general like a, a Patton or somebody like that. He was a leader of leaders. He was an organizational master. He was a leader as a president who made people work together, got the best out of people. He wrote something on leadership that I think is really important to understand. And I'm going to read from it. This is from the Eisenhower Library. We'll touch it. It's a little, um, about a seven or eight page missive that Eisenhower wrote called What is Leadership? This is the end of it. Quoting Eisenhower here. One day during my White House years, I called an assistant, a highly competent man of fine personality, and asked him if he would like to have more responsibility and remunerative job, which was then open. I explained that it would be operating rather independently, largely responsible for his own decisions. He thought for a moment, then he said, no, I'd be no good at it. I'm a number two man, and I think I'm a good one, but I'm not a number one man. I am not fitted for such a job, and I don't want it. Although his answer startled me, I respected his honesty. This is Eisenhower talking as president at the time. Moreover, this world always needs competent number two men and also number threes and number fours and number fives and each on his own level can be a good performer. Yet I would urge any young man with ambition never to get too hasty in concluding that he doesn't have the stature for top leadership. Often I've seen a man who had had many doubts about his own resources rise to the occasion and perform with great competence when the opportunity finally came. Any man, again, this is Eisenhower, any man who does his work well, who is justifiably self-confident and not unduly disturbed by the jeers and cynics and skirters, shirkers, as in those shirking work, any man who stays true to decent motives and is consistent of others is, in essence, a leader. Whether or not he is singled out for prominence, he's bound to achieve great inner satisfaction and in turning in superior work. And that, by the way, is what the good Lord put us on this earth for. It's Eisenhower. I'll link to the whole thing. It's all worth reading. But think about this for a minute. We don't just need that top leader, which we're going to obsess over because we're in an election cycle. So we're going to have everything from local dog catcher and uh, committees and things like that, all the way up to President of the United States on the ballot. We're going to talk about who's leaders. But we also need good number twos and number threes and number fours and number fives. I'm a big believer in 360 leadership. Not only should I be a good leader, am I making the person who's in charge of me, my supervisor, am I doing things to make them a better leader? And am I going to the people who are underneath me in the hierarchy and making them better leaders? 360 leadership, it's an important concept that I believe in deeply. Are you making your president and your congressperson better? And you can laugh at that and go, well, they're not listening to me. Are you holding them accountable? Are you advocating? Are you sharing on your social media news stories that keeps them accountable and keeps them between the lines? That's helping them be better leaders. That's helping a better country. It seems like a small thing, but imagine if everybody does it. 
listen to the standard that Eisenhower lays out here. And I wonder if we apply this to the headline stories. And it doesn't matter what the headline is. Good leader, bad leader, politicians behaving badly, superstars behaving good, people doing right, people doing wrong. Imagine if we applied this this to all our leaders, both online and in person. Staying true to decent motives, considerate of others, is in essence a leader. Not disturbed by the jeers of cynics and the shirkers who aren't doing work. That's a pretty good universal standard to apply to folks. Should we apply that to those big name Twitter and Facebook accounts of those celebrity commentators? We should apply that to them. Are they consistent? Are they considerate of others? Because they're leaders. Are they cynical? Or are they just shirking away from things? That makes them bad leaders. This is a great standard to apply as we watch news headlines roll by. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And just about every story in the news cycle, if you turn it down and you get past the noise, there's a lesson in whether the leadership of that situation was good or bad. And a lot of times we'll see people rising to the occasion, even though they're not the number one person. They may be the number two, the number three, number four. People rise up. People fail in leadership. People excel in leadership. Why don't we apply this standard that Eisenhower lays out? Decent motives, considerate of others, consistent, self-confident without being unduly disturbed, without being arrogant, without putting others down, lifting all boats. Are you a tractor or a trailer? A very wise person once said, you're either pulling others along or somebody's pulling you along. Can you tell the difference? Good leaders can, and if you can, that'll make you a good leader in your home, in your community, and in our country. Leadership, everything rises and falls on it. We should talk about it more often, and we'll keep doing so. More Hertel right after this. Back to Herd Tell. Bert Ligo, one of our lawyer folks, he is the editor emeritus of Ordinary-Times.com, the publication that I try not to go off the cliff because he will yell at me for it. Sir, how are you? I'm doing well, Andrew. Um, I have uh, just a moment's bit of confusion about uh, what we're going to be talking about today because it is not within my area of uh, legal expertise or experience. Well, once you've written about, I, I went back and checked roughly eight to 9,000 words about it. I think we can just set that to the side for the moment. But uh, <laughs> let's talk about this legal mess a little bit as we're recording this. Um, one interesting side bit that I think is a good window into the overall scheme. You've, you've done trials. You've been a lawyer. The judge had a stern talking to, to Donald J. Trump and counsel today. In the grand scheme of things, this is not unusual. This is pretty common. Somebody does something, somebody gets a little out of line. A lot of these is the first hearing or the first procedural motion a judge will do this. They'll just lay out the ground rules. Every judge has a little bit different kind of way they want to do their courts. This is not unusual. It is extraordinary because who it is and why they're having to do it 
but this is actually just part of the legal system. Somebody starts pushing the boundaries and the judge pushes back and the lawyers push boundaries and the judge pushes back and the state and the prosecutors push boundaries and the judge pushes back. This is all part and parcel of the system, isn't it? This happens in every case. The judge is in charge of what happens in the case, not the lawyers, not the parties. The judge will sometimes give parties a lot of play to get things resolved the way they like. But make no mistake, especially in a federal court, uh, the judge is not playing. And, and this judge are, is is really not playing with this defendant. And the federal part is really important here because federal court is a whole different beast, although it has a lot of the same trappings of the legal system. This is very much its own thing. It's, I don't know if exclusive is the right word, but it's a much different club of people that participate in the federal system. The judges are all appointed. They're all very secure in their positions. They have some of the most powerful positions in the legal system. This is a very ingrained institution that Donald J. Trump finds himself subjected to here. And the judges are untouchable by design. They have a lifetime appointment for good behavior. Good behavior means as long as they don't commit any major crimes or do something so awful that they literally get themselves impeached. So their salaries cannot be diminished. Their jobs cannot be taken away from them. Uh, they're supposed to be immune from political pressure. And that's exactly the sort of thing that a fellow like Trump could be bringing to bear in a different sort of arena, but not in federal court. This brings up, Bert Lyko joining us, this brings up one of the pieces of this that I don't hear discussed enough, in my opinion. For one of the first times in his life, especially the last 10 years or so, as his public profile rose as stardom and then the political career, Donald J. Trump has almost no control over what's happening right now. He's entitled to his defense. He has rights in the courtroom and the judge, even in exoner, even in kind of excoriating his team a little bit in his comments today, she was very careful to say, you have a right to do this. You don't have a right to do that. He has a lot of rights, but he has almost no control over what's actually going on in this process. Court humbles you. I don't care who you are. I've been through not criminal proceedings, but civil proceedings and things like that. I've had to be in a courtroom. I've had to testify before. It's a humbling thing. I don't care who you are, how powerful you are. When you go in there and they start throwing around the jargon and you don't really fully understand it all, even some lawyers don't fully understand it all, it's humbling. It's intimidating. This is an interesting way to watch how he conducts himself going forward, don't you think? I've had clients comment about that to me before. Um, you know, I, I do civil litigation, so those would have been matters not unlike the ones that brought you to court. And I've had clients tell me before that they find the process super intimidating, super scary. You know, the, and I'm used to it because I do this for a living. A court does not have that same sort of emotional effect on me. Uh, but that's because I know what's, what's inside that black box. It's because I'm used to seeing that building with the columns and the marble and the security guards and the marshals and the judge sitting up on that high wooden bench with the big seal and all of the, all of the trappings and then all of the ceremonies that you're going to find there. They seem very routine and normal to the people who work there every day. Uh, but if you're not there, that ceremony of being sworn in to testify under penalty of perjury having to walk from wherever it is you are across that big courtroom, across all that 
empty space that's been created that's there to impress upon you the importance and the gravity of what's happening. And you have felt that. Many people who go to court feel that effect that, you know, I am now in kind of a sacred space. And, and it's supposed to do that. That's why courts look the way they do. Yeah. Here's the thing about that. And TV doesn't convey this. And even court reporters don't talk about this part of it. I know this is basic stuff, but I want to cover the basics of how trials like this actually work before you actually talk about, because we skip ahead to the evidence and all that. It's like, well, no, all this procedural stuff to get to the evidence, this is important. When you're actually in the courtroom and you're not the lawyer, you're either the plaintiff or the defendant or whatever the case may be, you're bringing a lawsuit, you're part of a, a divorce action or a custody hearing, whatever the case may be. When you're a part of the system, there's this other thing that happens in the court that you don't get on TV. You're an attorney. You're talking to the other attorney. You and the other attorney are talking to the judge. You're talking to the clerk. You're talking to the bailiff. You're talking to this, the people that are shuffling paper. You're amongst it, but you're not in it. There's this whole system. There's a language. There's a rhythm to it. Everybody seems like they're all friends. And then you start proceeding and the switch flips and now they're adversarial. And then they gabble back out for lunch and now they're all back being friends and talking together and they go eat their lunches and all that. There's a thing about whoever's involved in this. The system really is a system, isn't it? And it's an ecosystem. And the person that isn't part of that system, you feel that intrinsically when you sit there, like this thing has its own rhythm. It's its own planet. Yeah. You could feel like, uh, you can feel like a dog on a surfboard. Uh, the wave is pushing you along. There's somebody else on that surfboard who's guiding it, and you aren't real sure what's happening. Uh, you might enjoy it. You might be scared by it. And the only thing that you really know how to do is just stay on that surfboard because you really don't want to be anywhere that you're out, outside of that surfboard. Bert Lyko joining us. One reason I wanted to talk to you about this was when the January 6th stuff happened. Look, I wrote my piece on January 6th on January the 7th. I wrote it that night, posted the next day. I think it's held up well. I haven't really changed my mind about just about anything since I wrote that. A little bit after that, you started writing about the legal stuff. We've talked about it before, but just kind of to recap how we got here to these current the current batch of indictments for the January 6th stuff. Almost every attorney I talked to, whether they were a progressive attorney, conservative attorney, whatever, almost all of them told me, look, if you're going to prosecute Donald Trump for January 6th, you're not going to get him on inciting a riot or the speech part or the rally part. That's just not going to be doable. Like they could charge it, but you'd never get it. Almost every attorney I talked to said that. So when and then you've written about the actual machinations in Congress that day and by proxy in the White House planning it the fake set of electors, the Pence angle, the Pence card, they called it, trying to overthrow and throw this back to the states. You took it from that angle and laid out the law of that. Now we actually have the indictment for the January 6th stuff. They skipped all the rally stuff. They skipped the inciting the riot stuff. They went straight to fraud and conspiracy charges. You wrote about it a year before it happened, year and a half. Now we actually have the charges. 
just based on what you thought, was this the smart way to attract it? Was this a better path of attracting it? Because everybody thought the inciting a riot thing while real popular on Twitter wasn't actually going to go anywhere. And that's kind of what we wound up with. Is this what you expected? I certainly expected most of what uh, Trump was doing personally at the rally out there by the Washington Monument, uh, making different kinds of speeches. That probably is all protected political speech. What isn't protected is making use of violence once it begins. And what isn't protected is deliberately avoiding discharging his duties. For me, the the most morally damning thing that we can know as an objective fact that happened, and I think I think we need to talk a little bit about the intent of the the actual crimes alleged in the indictment. But we can know objectively that Trump sat in a chair inside the Oval Office for three hours and watched it on TV and did nothing. Uh, this is not taking good care that the laws be faithfully executed. It's certainly not keeping the peace. And uh, personally, I think it's contemptible. Uh, but let me try and keep my opinion out of my legal analysis. Making political remarks to a crowd of people gathered for a political purpose is First Amendment protected speech. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to like it. It doesn't have to be true. And the indictment says so. The indictment makes it really clear that Donald Trump had a right to get up in front of a crowd of people and lie to them, which is what he did. What he doesn't yeah. have a right to do is disrupt an official proceeding of the United States of America, even if he is at that time the president. There's a little bit of a thing going around, Bert Lyko joining us. Folks, look, law, the law is arguing over terminology and what a word means and what does is mean, as people of our age remember kind of infamously. You just mentioned it, though, the purpose of Congress, the official function of government. I've actually been seeing people argue that the government, the congressional tally, because it's mostly a ceremonial thing, although it has an important role, was not an official act of government. I find it kind of silly, but a lot of the lawyers are like, it's kind of silly, but this is actually something you have to litigate out and explain to people. And, and there is there has been some case law on this sort of thing. I find the notion that the electoral count ceremony is not an official act of government to be uh, – that's a risible contention. Yes, it's a ceremony, uh, but so is swearing in a witness in court to testify under penalty of perjury. Now, the witness is never supposed to lie whether they get sworn in or for some reason that ceremony gets skipped for whatever reason, good or bad. Uh, but you're still not supposed to perjure yourself in court, whether you go through that ceremony or not. But there should be no doubt that's an official function of the court. And not everyone is empowered to swear a witness. You need a clerk at the court. You need a bailiff. You need a judge. You need somebody who is a, a minister or a officer of that court to perform that function. So, too, with the Electoral Count Ceremony. Yes, it's an elaborately staged ceremony. Yes, there are 
almost ritualized objections and almost ritualized dispositions of those objections along the way. And it looks like when it's done normally, it looks like it's a uh, pretty formal but pretty boring procedure. Uh, that doesn't make it not official. That the outcome is preordained does not make it not official. It's still a ceremony that has to happen, and that ceremony is one of the things that is a signal to the American people that what's going on is an important incident of our democracy. Yeah. Bert Lyko joining us. I think one of the interesting things here, and it goes to official and it goes to legal, the indictment, and I've already covered it because the Trump team and the Trump supporters are saying this is a free speech and election fraud case. And the first two paragraphs, other than the introduction of the indictment, which I have read, we have posted it at ordinary-times.com. The first two paragraphs of it, paragraph two and three are, yeah, Donald Trump had a right to say whatever he wanted to. He even had a right to lie about. Jack Smith agrees with everything that his supporters are saying. But then he goes further when you're just broad brush, because we don't want to dig through all the evidence yet. And Donald Trump's entitled to his defense here. You can lie about it. Where does a lie turn into fraud and conspiracy when you start trying to get other people to tell that lie? When you use that lie to try to take action in other ways. And as the indictment laid out, they were also litigating this properly through the court channels. There was almost 70 court cases about the election in various forms. They lost every single one of them. But that was the proper thing for them to do, and they had a right to do that. Where does legally, just broadly speaking, so people can understand it when this gets litigated in the press and in the social media, which it inevitably is going to be for us, where's that line where the lie and the free speech lie starts getting into criminal intent by telling others or influencing others? Because that's where you get into fraud and conspiracy, right? If I'm remembering Trump's, Trump's public remarks correctly, uh, you cross, you have crossed that line by the time he says, uh, you have to go fight. If you don't fight, uh, we won't have America anymore. Uh, at that point, he's not saying the election was stolen from me. He is issuing a call to action. He's saying you need to do something more right now. And this is while the ceremony is starting. If you watch the timeline, that this is after Congress has come into session to start counting the votes. And he's telling those supporters, you need to go do something right now. And the thing that he's urging them to do is alter the preordained outcome. That is disrupting an official proceeding. Bert Lyko joining us. The other part of this that's getting thrown about a lot is you can say you're going to commit a crime, but if you don't commit a crime, that's still not a crime. That's a fun little uh, online lawyering, locker room lawyer thing. The only problem with that is, is if you tried to commit a crime and you just sucked at it, does not absolve you from committing a crime. Legally, how can people parse that out when they start seeing that get bandied about on Facebook and Twitter? Uh, somebody tells you that, uh, ask them where they went to law school. Because... Uh, they probably didn't. First-year law students study the crime of attempt. First-year first law students study the crime of conspiracy. These things can tie first-year law students in some intellectual knots, but they're not actually that hard of intellectual knots to, to work your way out of. Just about everybody does. 
Conspiracy happens when two or more persons form a common intent to commit a crime, and at least one of them commits an overt act in furtherance. Uh, lawyers and law students who are listening to this, that will sound pretty familiar to them because that got drilled into their heads the same as it got drilled into mine. It got tested the, of them in their bar exam the same way that it got tested in mine. Uh, and, and that's all there is to it. That's what a conspiracy is. An attempt is an act in furtherance with the specific intent of committing a crime. And the punishment for an attempted murder is the same as for murder. The punishment for an attempted kidnapping is the same for a kidnapping. The punishment for a conspiracy to commit a bank robbery is the same thing as if you had actually robbed the bank. It's Interesting little first. piece of, uh, of trivia here. You may hear uh, somebody respond to, well, then this thing happened, and the objection may be, well, that's not a crime. Yeah, but it can be an overt act in furtherance. You can drive a car to a bank, and that's a perfectly legal thing to do. But if you're driving your co-conspirators to the bank so that they can go inside with guns and rob it, driving that car to the bank becomes your overt act in furtherance of a conspiracy to commit bank robbery. You'd also know that if you watched the documentary film on the justice system legally blonde because the first law class they actually dealt with that exact very thing you know criminal intent Another thing that I wanted to ask you about, though, with this particular set of the indictments and God, we have to <laughs> what a world we live in. We have to set our indictments in the batches because there's three of them, probably four of them by the by the end of next week. We'll see how that goes. But the Jan six indictment set, there was co-conspirators that were just not named, although we know who they are now. They were not indicted at this time. This is the case, unlike the document case down in Florida, the secure doc, that's going to be an evidence-heavy case because, like, he had this document, he shouldn't have had this doc. That's going to be an evidence. You can tell reading this, this is going to be a testimony-heavy trial. This is going to rely a lot on what we were just talking about. What were you thinking? What did you intend? What's the difference for somebody watching a trial? There, It's a very different thing, evidence-based trials where it's physical evidence and a testimony-based trial where you're really, you know, we're both writers, you got to tell a narrative, even though it's in a trial sense. That's basically what the attorneys are trying to do. They're trying to get their narrative to win through the testimony. Just walk folks through that as a layperson as they start watching this unfold, because that's a very different skill set. Those two trials, although it's the same defendant, they're going to be approached very differently, aren't they? I would, I would imagine so. Uh, and part of that is we're dealing with really different kinds of crimes. It's going to be well beyond the amount of time that we have for for a nuts and bolts sort of description of how you build an, a narrative out of questions and answers. But that's a basic mechanism. You, you the lawyer, ask uh, the witness a series of questions to work through the facts that you need to have brought out. 
there's a list of legal elements. It's not that hard for you to discern the elements. I've got a list of all the elements in the J6 indictment right now if we want to take the time to have a law school lesson and go through those. But the facts that you ask questions about have to touch on those elements. They have to be somehow relevant to those elements. And once you prove your elements, you have now proven your case. Like I just r rattled through the elements of a conspiracy. And these statutory conspiracies in Title 18 have a couple extra elements attached to each of them, uh, like defrauding the United States, which doesn't mean stealing money from the United States. It means altering the outcome of an official proceeding. So you have to prove those things. Uh, just to pick that as an example, uh, Jack Smith or one of the other prosecutors on his team uh, will be asking in the J6 trial of whoever it is that they're calling up to the witness stand, did you intend to have the electoral count ceremony result in Donald Trump being named president for another term? Is that Was that your goal? Bert Lyko joining us. Another bigger picture question, because again, this is going to play out because, you know, we can talk about the evidence in the indictment, but they're going to have evidentiary hearings. Some of this may not make it to the trial. Some of it may. There's a lot to go in. So I'm trying to stay big picture here a little bit. One thing I'm watching and some of our legal friends have talked about watching and you can explain to folks is even though these are separate trials, they're going to be entangled. The January 6th batch of indictments mentions Georgia over and over and over again. We're assuming, if not Donald Trump himself, at least some of these same people are probably going to catch indictments out of the Fannie Willis uh, grand jury down in Georgia. How do folks, the lay people again, the audience, me, people like me, how do they keep this disentangled? Because they, there's going to be a lot of cross streams in these trials, especially since they're all going to be kind of going on at the same time. You're going to have a hearing for one while the main trial is going for another. How can folks kind of try to keep this separated as they watch this? Because this is going to be going on past the election. This stuff's going to go on for probably a year. And average federal trial is something like 12 to 15 months usually, getting it all the way done from the time it's brought. This stuff's going to go for a couple of years probably. How can folks kind of try to keep this stuff separate, even though in the news and it's all Donald Trump and it's all going to cross their streams? What's a layperson to do trying to keep up with this? Yeah, that's a big challenge. It's a challenge for lawyers. If a single law firm is handling the defense of all of these cases, they're going to have to have a board somewhere where they're tracking developments in one case to see how they sort of echo in the other cases. Uh, the J6 case and the Georgia election interference case that we assume is going to get started pretty soon here, uh, that's a pretty good example of it because interference in the Georgia election is part of what's alleged in the J6 indictment. Things that you say in one case are going to be used against you in a different case. And that's part of the lawyer's job is to keep track of what has been said in each case, make sure that everything is consistent, make sure that everything is leading you on a path calculated to get you to the result that you're hoping for out of the proceeding. Uh, I guess my first answer to your question then is it's a challenge. Another thing that is going to be a challenge is remembering that we are dealing with several different systems of courts. The Georgia state court system is not the federal court system. The Georgia state court system is a part of the state of Georgia, which is not the federal government. And 
it's real easy to get that confused, especially because there are overlapping facts. There are similar kinds of crimes. And all I can tell you is pay attention to which court a statement is made in, which court a judge is acting on behalf of. And remember that there's a lot of cases being being prosecuted at the same time in different places and for slightly different kinds of charges. Bert, like I wanted to ask you this before we let you go, though. You're, you wrote uh, paging Dr. Kubler-Ross, which was your piece about the Pence card and the alternate electors and all that as it was happening before January 6th actually went all the way down and what we saw there. So you've been thinking about this for a while. We're going to link to that whole piece, by the way. You need to read it because it explains exactly why the Mike Pence praise is unwarranted, in my opinion. I know I understand why people want to go there, but I don't think he gets credit for anything. You've had a while since December of 2020 to think about this now. Why do you feel differently now that the indictment has come? Obviously, this an indictment is step six of a 100-step process. <laughs> But how do you feel differently now? Because people always wondered, would we ever actually have an indictment? Would there actually be criminal charges? Well, now we've got them. How do you feel differently than when you sat down to write that piece before January 6th even happened and you knew what was going to happen? You just kind of saw the legal mess coming. How do you feel now looking back on it? I think I made a significant mistake in that piece. And that was uh, that appears very towards the end of that essay. I wrote then that I didn't think Donald Trump had the guts to try it. A lot of what I had seen from his behavior before that suggested to me that he was just a bully, that he's just a blowhard, someone who likes to do a lot of posing and posturing and making himself appear a certain way and perhaps exploiting that appearance when certain people chose to buy into it. But this is a guy who fired people over Twitter. This is a guy who would not look people in the eye in reality when he fired them in the White House. You know, what we saw on The Apprentice years before he entered the, uh, entered the political arena, uh, that had all been edited. Uh, it didn't look to me like this is a guy who would actually have the guts to really do something subversive towards the rule of law itself, to really do something subversive towards a structure of government. Uh, but it turned out he did. It turned out he was willing to go that far. So I was wrong about that. Uh, I was not wrong, and I, I don't think anyone else who made essentially the same sort of analysis that I did, mine is not unique. Uh, the the legal analysis that Mike Pence lacked the power to alter the outcome of the electoral vote count, uh, I don't feel like that was a gigantic leap. It takes reading the statute. It takes understanding what the procedure is going to be. But he just didn't have that legal ability, never did. I'm glad he got advice that he didn't have to do that. Uh, thank you for rendering that advice, Dan Quayle. Uh, and thank you, Mike Pence, for uh, following the law. The only thing that we can praise Mike Pence for, though, is following the law, which is what we are all supposed to do anyway. Thank you, Mike Pence, for not breaking the law. Uh, this, is, this is pretty weak praise.
Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church in Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Wonder too, and you just touched on it. How much of this defense? Because the 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 judge probably is not even going to allow the free speech um, and election fraud part of the defense. They probably won't even let that as an argument into the court. They may in some ways, but it's just so ridiculous. They probably won't even make it in the court. A lot of people are yeah. thinking this is going to transfer. They're going to start blaming some of these co. Well, all these co-conspirators were doing it, and Trump was just sitting under it. There's a lot of underlings to this. You talked about him having the guts to do it. He did a lot of sitting around the transfer of blame to the underlings. Is that going to be a big part of this case, do you think? That's the other thing that is part of Trump's style is you take somebody who's next to you and you throw them under the bus. He's done it again and again and again. Uh, I have a hard time understanding how he can continue to attract people to work with him on anything because – you're going to wind up under that bus at some point. I hope the money along the way was good and get paid up front. And that's the last thing I wanted to ask you, Berlika, with us. Of the co-conspirators named here, almost all of them are lawyers except for one. Um, what does that tell you? And I, I'm not making a bad lawyer joke because there's good lawyers, there's bad lawyers, and most of them fall somewhere in between the two, given on how the day is and how much they got paid. But what does that tell you that there really is some rot in the lawyer class of folks who are perfectly happy using the law for their own means? That's not a new thing that's been going on ever since we've had lawyers and law and people. But when you get it with somebody who's like a Donald Trump or pick whoever that really wants to hold on to power, that really is a lethal combination. And I think we need to have a conversation at some point about that. It's like, look. These are lawyers. These are the people that are supposed to know better that were really pushing this, the John Eastmans of the world. 
that needs to be part of this conversation too. We can't just umbrella that under, oh, well, Trump did it and all these other folks. No, there's a lot of bad people that saw Donald Trump as their chance to do a lot of bad stuff. And a lot of them are lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, back at ordinary-times.com uh, in an earlier incarnation, I think this sort of fell out of fashion during my editorship, uh, but a, a common quote that people would throw at one another from a, uh, a tech guy named Elizur Yudlikowski. I hope I'm pronouncing his names right. Um, but the quote is, politics is the mind killer. Once you inject politics into a discussion, in a whole lot of people, and lawyers are certainly not immune from this, reasoning sort of switches off. Logic switches off. Objectivity switches off. When I hear a Republican did X, a little part of my brain turns off the reason and objectivity and stops saying, well, okay, I guess that's something you can do, and turns into, well, that is just the, the worst thing I've ever heard of. It's evil and wrong and terrible and must be stopped. And, you know, converse if you're talking to a Republican about something a Democrat has done. It can be very difficult to distance yourself from what you would normally think of as right and wrong, distance yourself from normally thinking of something that seems like it would be legal versus seems like it would be uh, contrary to law uh, because it produces partisan advantage. People, and there's nobody listening to this who's immune to it. You and I are not immune to it. And unfortunately, people who are in politics are particularly susceptible to it. You need to train yourself to turn off that part of your brain that immediately switches to say, uh, if it's for my team, it's good. And if it's for the other team, it's bad. You got to turn that off and you got to turn it off within yourself. John Eastman did not do that. None of these lawyers did that. And they let it grow powerful enough that it overrode whatever legal ethics they had. I don't know if they were ethical lawyers before this, but politics is the mind killer. And if you're going to participate in politics, if you're going to comment on politics and have opinions about it, you've got to use your mind. And it's easy to not. Yep. Unfortunately, human behavior, as we always say, is undefeated. You got to keep that stuff in check. Bert, like I love talking to you about this stuff. Appreciate your time. Let folks know where they can keep up with you until we get you back on, my good friend. You know, these days I am occasionally writing columns at ordinary-times.com. That is that that's the easiest place to find me. I'm basically off uh, Twitter X or whatever it's being called these days. Uh, I am posting on uh, Blue Sky right now, but I'm doing that under my actual name. As as we've said on other episodes, Bert Lyko is a pen name that I've used over the years, and I'm I'm slowly working on retiring that. Well, don't retire talking to us because we greatly appreciate you, my friend. I enjoy your insight, and I like taking stuff that we wrote a couple of years ago and looking back on it with current events and we're not always right, but man, we we keep it within the the bundle of shots pretty good, not too bad. So, well done, my friend. We'll talk again very very soon. Appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure, Andrew. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, sir.
Oh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Usually we try to end on a good note when we have time. This isn't a good note, but it's a way to try to get some good in a really bad situation. The wildfires out in Maui are just incredible pictures. Apocalyptic gets used too much, but when you have people abandoning their cars in place and jumping into the ocean to try to get away from these flames, this whole city was gone in a matter of minutes. Uh, it's just horrifying. The death toll is up to almost 100 people. It will probably go higher. They're having a very slow going in the recovery effort um, because of the nature of a wildfire and just the, the sheer amount of destruction here. We want to give you, as we promised we would, and as we always do when natural disasters and other humanitarian issues arise, a way to give. Now, we always advocate if you're going to give to a situation that you're not directly involved in or far away from or just see online or in the news or whatever, there's nothing wrong with the national and international big organizations, but the problem is they've got a lot of overhead. And a lot of their money is going to go to the organization, and then some of it will trickle down. We always advocate give to the people that are already doing work in that community because they'll know how to get it there faster. They'll be more efficient, and you don't have all the overhead of the big organizations because when you donate money to that text on TV or whatever, you don't really know where it's going. This way you know where it's going. We're going to give you a list. This is from uh, civilbeat.org. Uh, if you want to just give money, we're going to have a list of links of places. These are verified. These are organizations that you can trust. The Maui Strong Fund, that's going to be the overarching. The Maui Food Bank, which has already been working there. The Maui United Way, the Salvation Army, Hawaii, and Pacific Island Divisions. Public School of Hawaii Foundation. Remember, school is supposed to be starting for the people that live there full time. Can you imagine? Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, the Maui Humane Society. One thing that blew me away when we went up uh, during the West Virginia floods in 2016, the church that I grew up in was doing disaster relief. It opened as a shelter. They had this entire kennel put together for all the pets, and they said we didn't realize it. And they had three or four people full-time, 24 hours a day, taking care of the pets. Humane Society, if you want to give to that. World Central Kitchen, that's Jose Andres' excellent organization. They were already doing meals through local restaurants the same day as the fire. Great organization. The Hawaii Lions Fund, not familiar, the Lions Club is a long-running civic organization. That organization is also matching donations, as is a lot of these other ones. We'll give you the full list. If you want to send supplies, uh, non-perishable goods, paper goods, things like that, um, you can go to the store, go to your pack and ship, go to your post office. Post office has these things called, if it fits its ship's package for one flat rate, take that box, go to the store, just buy one extra of whatever you're getting anyway, jelly, peanut butter, snacks, protein bars, rice, um, baby food, diapers, paper items, toiletries, things like socks, things like toothbrushes, throw them in that box. We're going to have a link for you. You can send them to the food bank. Also in Central Maui and South Maui, there's two different items where you can deliver it. There's also emergency shelters will have a list. They need things like batteries, flip-flops. They call them slippers in Hawaii. They mean flip-flops, um, perishable goods, bottled water. You can't really ship that. That gets really expensive, but you can send money to these shelters. You can send them batteries. You can send them things like that. We're going to have all this listed on the Substack, Substack, uh, hurtelshow.substack.com also be in the show notes unless you're on iTunes because they don't allow links. There's also volunteer lists if you're in the Hawaii uh, for whatever reason. If you go to Hawaii on vacation later on or you've already planned that well in advance and you're going to be in Maui, take a few hours and go volunteer. It'll change your life if you've never volunteered in a humanitarian aid. 
but avoid the scams. Give to these organizations that have already have a history in those communities. It'll get there faster. They'll do better work. They already know the area. They know the people. That'll keep you away from these scams. It never hurts. Go to something like a charity navigator or the Hawaiian government, um, hpe.ehawaii.gov. You can go on there. They have a list of certified businesses. Be careful of scammers. Give if you can. If you can't, please give them a prayer and a thought and keep track of the story. That'll do it for this edition of Hertel. A uh, quick programming note. I have to be on the road most of this week, so we'll have a couple shows, and we're going to have some best ofs at the end of the week. Also, the good talks, those are the interview portions. Those are going up on the YouTube page, so you can watch that in full video. They'll also be on the Substack, hertelshow.substack.com. Substack is free. You get everything for free. You want to give us money, you can do it. We're not going to stop you, but we'll give you all the content we do for free. Make sure you check that out. So wherever you and yours are across the street around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. Can't wait to talk to you again on the next Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor... I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church in Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.